I don't buy power tools. I I move the economy forward by paying people who have power tools. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to another Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Jerome Hardaway. Hey, everyone. Brian Hogan. Hi there. Dave Kimura. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Quick shout out about Ruby Dev Summit. It's online and it's free. Go check it out. Uh, We also have a special guest this week and somebody who's going to be speaking at the Dev Summit, Jordan Hudgens. Hi there. Jordan, do you want to introduce folks to who you are? Sure, absolutely. I am the lead instructor at Bottega, which is a code school. We have locations in Salt Lake City, Utah, and then also in Phoenix, Arizona, and we're a full stack uh, development code school. Nice. We also did a My Ruby story, so if you want to know a little bit more about Jordan, as we speak, it was actually released last week, I think. And yeah, so as this is released, it was a few weeks ago, but you can go look it up and you can kind of get uh, his story about his journey into code. I invited you to come on the show because I ran across a blog post that introduces metaprogramming. And I think there's a video that actually accompanies it. Now, when I was a new Rubyist, one of the things that I just had in my head was that I finally arrived as a Ruby expert when I could actually do metaprogramming and knew what it was. Do you find that people kind of run into that or is that more of a just, you know, something that I was hitting, you know, years ago when I was learning? No, absolutely. I think that's definitely something common and I have seen it in my son when I was when I came to Ruby. Metaprogramming was one of those very scary concepts. You know, the word by itself is a little bit intimidating, and you think of it as like this crazy advanced kind of programming techniques. So being able to implement that definitely felt good. And then I've also seen it with the students that we teach at the code school when they learn about metaprogramming and how it works. Uh, you can tell it uh, it's definitely a pretty exciting thing. Now, is there a formal definition of metaprogramming in Ruby? Uh, well, essentially, it's code that writes code. Yeah, it's a way of being able to have code that can dynamically at runtime render other methods and make other methods available to the program. Gotcha. So what would be a, you know, just a, at its most simple use case for metaprogramming? You know, do you have a scenario or some kind of situation that you would recommend using it? Yes, absolutely. And there are a few. The The best use case I think I've ever seen is actually implemented in Rails. Yeah, it, for everyone who's worked with Rails listening knows that you can run database queries such as doing something like, like user dot find underscore by underscore email, pass in the email, and then it will go and find the user with that particular email. Now, there is no method in Active Record or in the user model that is called find by email, but that's something that is created at runtime. So it allows you to have methods that are generated on the fly, and so you don't have to clutter up your code base 
with you know, all of these kind of string-based queries and those kind of things. So th uh, that's, to me, that is always the use case I point to. Another one is something I've implemented. I have a phone parser gem that we have in, that we use in a number of our applications in our organization, and it's also available on Ruby gems. but it essentially just parses and validates a phone number, but then it also has a country code lookup. So we wanted the ability to very quickly and easily do something like country codes dot us question mark and then pass in the uh, the phone number to see if that particular phone number was valid and if it came from or it belonged to a certain country now with all the countries in the world i would have to literally create a little you know abbreviation question mark method in the file and that would be very time consuming and would not be very fun at all but by just a few lines of code with metaprogramming, it goes and it checks to see if a particular phone number matches a uh, if it matches the country code. And then it uses the abbreviation to check to see if that is mapped to that country code. And it, within about eight lines of code, I could do what it would have taken hundreds and hundreds of lines to do without metaprogramming. Cool. So is there any kind of performance implications with using metaprogramming versus doing hundreds and hundreds of lines of coding? Is it just as fast or is it faster? Uh, I think there's going to be a little bit, a very small performance hit depending on what you're you know, what you're looking to do. I've never had that really be an issue because the methods are generated and it's not something that is incredibly memory intensive. And uh, I've never I've never had it be an issue if you started to use it across the board and loaded up your entire system with it, where essentially all methods or a majority of methods were created dynamically, you might run into that. But that would be not just a poor choice to do from a performance point of view, but it also be a very poor choice to do in terms of readability. Yeah, I've, I've, I've seen I've seen in my experiences that it comes down to the type of metaprogram that you do, right? Like if you start... If you if you have like a, you know, a bunch of logic somewhere in a method missing, that's going to be a performance bottleneck. But if you've got something that's generating a bunch of stuff when the generating a bunch of methods when the application starts up, it might increase the startup time of your application, but the performance throughout the application, in my experience, seems to to not have any uh, fluctuation at all. Exactly. Yeah. And and like you said, the type of metaprogramming, because you know there are you really two main types that I'll usually work with. You know, the first is when we use method missing. You know, method missing essentially is by definition going to have a little bit of a performance hit because meth with, you know, the way that Ruby works, it the system is going to look at every single method in that class and, you know, in object in everything. And then it's going to say, okay, is method missing defined? And if it is, does it match this pattern? And if so, do everything inside of it. So it's going to be kind of the method of last resort in a sense. So that that's one. And that one can, you know, that one could have a little bit of a performance hit. Usually nothing huge if you do it right, but it can. Whereas the second type where you use define method, 
that's a little bit different, right? You know, because with define method, you're really just creating a large set or, you know, a dynamic set of methods at runtime. So like you said, when you start up the Rails server, then it's going to go and it's going to build all those methods, but it's not going to be an issue when you're calling it, whereas method missing has a different type of lookup process. The attributes for an active record model, is that how those are done? Like uh, you, if you the, if you have like a username, first name, and a last name in your in your database table, then you know when you you can you can you know you can do user dot first name, user dot last name. Are those are those methods created that, pretty, in that same process? It's been a while since I looked up that. I'm pretty sure that that uses method missing, but I would have to I would have to look it up uh, just because I thought that it would go and it would look up the, uh, you know, a check to see is there a find by and then match a pattern to see if it's a column in that database. Yeah, but then you're only, you know, you're only looking up a, you know, you're only having to check a few different methods in order to do that. Yeah, and I've cleaned up some of my code using meta programming in the past where something like a product would have serialized attributes and I would on the fly, you know, just create different methods on the keys that is in that serialized attribute, you know, so like um, product.size or product.color, and the size and color are different keys in the serialized attribute column. So, you know, it says having to do something where you do like product.attributes or, you know, you know, whatever the case, you know, whatever your column is, and then pass in a hash for the color. So, you know, I could just do product.color instead. So it's, you know, definitely sped it, not, not necessarily sped up, but sped up the programming side of things and makes it much more readable if you have the general understanding that you have a serialized attribute, you know, with this generation of the different methods. Absolutely. That's a that's a great use case. And what I've seen is I tend to use it the most one when I'm building libraries like gems and then second when I'm building out APIs. You know, those two things, it usually seems to be the best use cases for me. Now, one thing that um, I've run into working with things like metaprogramming is I'll do some monkey patching, right? So I'll open a class and add stuff in or I'll, you know, I'll use define method to put something in. And then it turns out, hey, you know what? The other person working on my project also used define method and uh, they just happened to create the same method. And so there's clobbered mine and the code didn't work quite as well. So how do you avoid these kinds of collisions and things like that when you're building out an infrastructure like this so that you don't have unexpected functionality in your Ruby code? Uh, that's a great question because that's where things can get really messy. And I've seen that happen a number of times. And that's, you know, one of the reasons why monkey patching has in certain circles you know, kind of gotten a bad reputation or at least comes with a pretty strong warning on, you know, you never exactly, you, you don't always know the full set of ramifications when you're doing monkey patching because you don't know who else may be uh, overriding those set of methods or opening up that class and you know how that's going to be affected. I, 
my personal approach is I try to namespace and separate things out as much as humanly possible. So I'm a huge, huge fan of creating that separation of concern. So if there's something that I can do in the, say, the lib directory and place that kind of functionality inside of a, a separate module and then call that module instead of opening something else and running the risk that someone else may be doing the same thing, then I go with that approach because I've seen that protects against a lot of, uh, you know, kind of future proofing someone else doing that. And sometimes even myself doing it, you know, I will work on a project, come back six months later and think, oh yeah, I need to open up that one class to add this type of functionality and then find out I'd done something similar to it when I'd worked on it previously. So uh, being able to separate that out as much as possible is that's what my personal approach is with it. Yeah, and if you're creating a gem, you have to be, you know, sensitive to maybe other gems in that space or even the Rails core having that name already. Because, you know, I have run into issues with a couple of gems where they've used something like group by week and it basically overrode the Rails core. And I was, you know, struggling. I'm like, why is my code not working? This parameter is in the Rails document and it should work, but it's not working correctly. So, you know, do be mindful if you are creating a gem or doing something like that, that you aren't basically taking functionality away from other parts of applications or, you know, uh, other libraries, or, you know, because it's just going to be a bad time for the end user to try and troubleshoot where exactly things went wrong. Absolutely. That's a very good point. And one issue that I've run into every single time with applications that use, say, Rails Admin, which uses Kaminari by default for pagination, if that application, try, you know, if I would try to add will paginate to that application, I have to create initializer and then open up the Kaminari and will paginate classes and and then redefine some of their methods because they both override each other. And I and that's a case where, you know, one gem's dependency, Rails admin, goes in and it brings a, another set of dependencies which can affect other things I want to implement. So that's where it definitely can get pretty messy. And so being intelligent about the types of method naming that you do when you're creating a gem is very important. Yeah, absolutely. Ransack had something like that as well, where they just they added search method uh, to a class, and they ended up causing conflicts with other parts of the application where I was using some full text indexing, and you know, it's it's definitely one of those annoying things. But I think Ransack had they eventually changed the method to where you can also use Ransack method instead of search. So I think that they kind of saw their you know, mistake there and kind of fix it with adding a optional alias. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. I think that's that's indicative of sort of the the more you know, the more you dig into Ruby, the more stuff you do for Ruby, the more you, you go, yeah, maybe maybe adding methods to an existing class isn't the best approach. Maybe throwing things in a module and just calling them in a more functional manner is probably better. I know that's that's the that's the thought process I've gone down a few times with some things I've released where I go, oh, that that was 
that was bad. I, I should, <laughs> I should have not done that. Now I'm in trouble. I, I, I think the, the Kaminari versus Will Paginate thing is a great example of that. Cause that's, that's a situation I've, I've been in myself. And my first inclination was, eh, uh, just, I'll just use Kaminari everywhere. And then I, there was, <laughs> you know, like, you know, try to, try to take the cheap approach, right? Well, right. whatever. But it was like, well, then, then there were, then there were other issues with that. And I, okay, what, what, you know, what are my options? So, so, you know, you know, getting to that, you, 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 you're, you're teaching, you're teaching people to use, uh, how, how to use metaprogramming. And, and then that's really cool. How do you, uh, what advice do you give to, uh, to people who are, uh, uh, doing metaprogramming so that they can sort of protect themselves in the future? How, how, how do they be good citizens to other developers, um, who, who might encounter their code later or maybe even, you know, future them? Absolutely. No, that's a great question. And I, because, and it kind of goes also with the question on, you know, why are we even teaching metaprogramming to new students? Because that's something that usually is definitely falls in the realm a little bit more of advanced programming on the Ruby side. And so the very first thing I do when I'm teaching is I add the caveat that metaprogramming is yeah, comes with a warning. It is something that has an incredible set of powerful functionality built into it. It has a lot of potential to do great things, but it also has a potential to cause a number of problems in the application. The, uh, the top to me being readability. So many times where I go into an application that has all kinds of metaprogramming type of constructs built built throughout the whole thing, I can barely even read it to know what it's supposed to do. You have to parse through all of these regular expressions and then see where those methods are being sent to. And it can just get very messy very quickly if it's implemented poorly. And so I the first thing that I'll usually do is walk them through some examples that I've seen where it can be done poorly and say this is these are the ramifications of doing that. But then I will follow it up and I typically I show them active record immediately and show exactly this is when metaprogramming is done right. You know, this is exactly what it was intended to do to be able to allow you to have much more flexibility and be able to have cleaner code, have these dynamic methods that allow you to run in their case, in some powerful database queries with methods that weren't even created in the code. That's a really powerful thing. And then I also will go into things like showing examples of poorly written classes that have a dozen nearly identical methods. And the only difference is the name and then some little uh, tiny difference inside of the method. And that's the only difference. And then I show how you could take all those dozen plus methods, put the names in an array and then show how you can leverage things like define method to generate them. And all of a sudden, hundreds of lines are, you know, boiled down into five or six lines. So that's something that I like to show is both sides of it, show the power of it, but also 
show what can happen when it's done poorly. One of the other things that I do is I show them how how doing monkey patching can cause issues. I show them how you can actually open up the string class and change one of the basic string type of functionalities like upcase or something like that and show when you override that 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 affects the entire rest of the application. And so being able to understand that to me is really critical, both the good and the bad. And one of the main reasons why I teach it is not just so that they can go implement that. Because I know, you know if you remember back when you were a junior developer, building out metaprogramming modules into your system was really <laughs> probably would not have been a good idea. I know it would not have been for me because things would have got messy. And I was just trying to get applications working. I, I cared less about, you know, being efficient with how I was defining a few methods that that came later as I became more mature as a developer. But what I've found some of the real power in junior developers learning how metaprogramming works is because it kind of lifts the veil a little bit on understanding some things in Rails because so much of Rails has dynamic methods built into it. And Rails has done such a great job with metaprogramming. We talked about Active Record. Also think about the routing system and how you have all of these methods that you can call that link to other pages throughout the application. Not one of those are methods that you had to define unless you did it manually. Those are all generated right when the application starts up and then you can call them in your view and you don't have to you know, fill out the entire path to a specific page. You can have Rails do that dynamically and when I show, and so that seems very magical, which is cool, but that also is not a great thing because you know, things that are too magical, you don't really understand. So what I like to show is this is all that's happening. Look, this is how they're defining methods or this is how they're using method missing to just capture each one of those routes coming in and then generating the method so that you can use them. And so that helps to give some understanding, some clarity into how Rails work. So I really like to use the concept of metaprogramming and the process of it to help them understand other parts of development. It seems like a good approach. It seems like it, it helps make that connection. It's got the the appropriate warnings in place, right? Uh, it's, it's got some here's here's what here's the the great power you can have, and here's all the damage you can cause if you're not careful. So I think that's a really great approach. Thank you. Yeah. No, I I've, I've seen it have some really good results with the students. Yeah, it's definitely not something that I would, you know, that I would have considered when I was teaching Ruby. It was it was not something I covered. It was something that, um, you know, if if someone asked how things work, then I might, you know, go into it a little bit. But it was never something that was top of mind uh, to think about. So and, and I, you've kind of got me rethinking, uh, rethinking the approach a little bit. So I appreciate that. What's one of the worst examples, if you can talk about it, what's one of the worst examples of metaprogramming that you've come across professionally? Like just something that's made you made you just like just <laughs> just back away from the computer and, 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 and hide in the corner for a while. It's like, uh, you know, I got to get up and get, take a walk. I, good well, examples. Let me just yeah. go look at some old code I wrote a few years ago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
I, so I took over a legacy application about three years ago, and it was a pretty messy application to begin with. I mean, the, it, it pretty much followed, if you go through like the Rails anti-patterns book, it pretty much followed almost all the anti-patterns pretty well. Uh, it uh, had pretty much all the logic in the views and the controllers, the models barely had anything. But then all of a sudden I ran into this it was just like this hive of metaprogramming. And I'm not sure if it was one of the previous developers had like just read the metaprogramming book or something and got super excited about it. But I'm not sure if I've ever read code that was that hard to decipher. I I opened up <laughs> this class and I looked at it and I had no idea what that class did. I mean, it was method missing all over the place. And I'm used to, you know, opening up a method missing method and seeing, you know, four or five lines of code inside of there, usually just a regex matcher and then a send method to you know, to some object and, uh, you know, adding some of that type functionality, something relatively straightforward, something that kind of, you know, makes logical sense. If you read it, this was nothing like that. They had uh, multiple conditionals inside of the method missing. I mean, they had anything and everything you can imagine. And, uh, and then they also used only like the, uh, uh, yeah, they only use like dollar ones all over the place and those kind of things, which I have I I have sparingly in mind. I try to use some of the regex match methods when I can, just because I think it's a little bit easier to read than going a little bit more old school. But that that was definitely the worst. And one of the other hard things about it is especially if you take over an app like that, and this one did not have any tests whatsoever, literally not a single test for the entire application. And that was such a hard piece of code to refactor because, you know, first, my first approach usually when I'm doing a refactor is I build some tests to make sure I'm capturing that functionality and I can check to see if my changes broke anything or if everything was good on uh, each change I made. And this one was hard because I had to dive into it to see how exactly I was going to test it because there was, I hate when I look at a type of method missing call or something and I don't, I can't decipher what the inputs and outputs are. You know, if I can't do that, then it's going to start to make things very messy because that makes it much harder to test. And so that was uh, by far that was the worst, uh, the worst one I've experienced. Now, when you're testing metaprogramming, a lot of times it's it's called metaprogramming because you're a level above just writing the actual method definition. You know, you're writing code that writes the code. And so sometimes the testing or meta testing, I don't know, gets a little bit hairy, right? Where it's, okay, well, now I'm going to test that this method got created and then I'm going to test that the method actually does what I expect. But it's usually also based off of some kind of input either from the database or from the user or something else that does the metaprogramming in the first place. And so you can't always count on or predict what code is going to be generated by your meta by your metaprogramming. 
So are there ways to either test it or constrain it so that you know basically exactly what kind of functionality it's going to create? I personally try to kind of follow as much of a set of real world examples as I can. So like, for example, in my phone parser gem, if you go in and you can see some tests in there for that. And it, yeah, I just gave real world examples mm -hmm. on things that I would query. And then another thing that you can do is uh, that's where to me respond to missing that method comes in so handy because you can check to see and you can place it in a block in your test and say, okay, does this respond to missing? Pass it in and check to see. You, you know, obviously you don't want that to be false. And so if not, then you're, then you're good. Then you can say, okay, so that method, when I put that in there, that was created. And then after that, you can go and then you can call the method. You can pass in the input that you'd plan to give and then see, does that match the output? And so that, that's what my personal approach is when I'm testing it. I try to take as many real world use cases as possible, pass in that data, see if it matches the output, and then I do leverage the respond to missing. And that's also something because I know that many Ruby developers through the years have really kind of clung on to respond to missing whenever I'm using it or when I'm teaching it, I make sure to tell them that respond to missing. To me, it's just as important as putting method missing in there because so many developers will put a check in there and say, does this object respond to missing? If so, pass it in. If not, then you know, don't, don't use it. So if, uh, that's another thing, if I've seen that people only put a method missing in just by itself, I've seen other developers that won't even touch it because it makes it much harder to be confident about knowing that, uh, that that's going to work. So I just posted a, uh, image showing my awesome Photoshop skills where it's a graph readability of metaprogramming. It's kind of how I view it, where, uh, <laughs> you know, you start out with just a little bit of metaprogramming and the code is very readable. But as you go on, the more and more metaprogramming you add, it's almost like an inverse tangent where <laughs> it starts to slowly and creepily get closer and closer to how you can read Perl. So at some, point, <laughs> at some point, like too much metaprogramming just becomes unreadable. Kind of like Pearl. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, and it's funny, it's similar to a blog post that I found uh, when I was relatively new to metaprogramming about you know, the, 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 they had a graph of the beginner, the beginner's journey to metaprogramming. And it was, I don't understand why I should metaprogram. This seems dumb. And then it kind of like moved up to, this is interesting. Uh, and then there was a, the peak of the graph was, I must metaprogram everything. All the time, every single thing my entire code was metaprogramming. Then there was sort of the trough of disillusionment, in which was the, this was a horrible mistake. I should have never done this. And then it kind of went up again with the uh, you know the the end of the graph was metaprogramming's fine in some cases, and it, it 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 is and it is a journey that I've seen a lot of Ruby developers just go through. They 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 approach it very cautiously and then throw caution to the wind, and then they they end up back at this. Uh, yeah, there's a there's a place where I would metaprogram occasionally, rarely, sometimes, maybe. <laughs> <laughs>
It's definitely a journey in being able to do it. And one thing that I tell the students is one of the most mature decisions you can make and one of the best decisions you can make about metaprogramming many times is when not to use it. You know, there are a ton of times where you could implement something, but I tell them to always ask themselves, if you come back to that module or to that class six months from now and you read it, are you going to have any clue on what it's supposed to do? And if the answer is no or probably not, then it may not be the best option for you. Yeah, I look at it from a standpoint, you know, it is a tool in your tool set. It's not a way of programming. So use it when it makes sense, but don't always use it as your style. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a mm-hmm. that's a great that's a great way of looking at it. My measuring stick was how many how many comments am I writing to future self about how this works? <laughs> you know, if I if I start if I have like half a page of of comments to myself explaining what this metaprogramming is doing, that's sort of a way for me to pause and go, huh. If I have to explain this that much, this, yeah. this might not be the best way to approach this problem. Perhaps there's a better way. Yeah, present and future me always hates past me. Same here. Yeah. Past me was way too lazy of a developer. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's even better is when you get in and it's like, who who even wrote this? And then you realize it was past me. <laughs> I know I hate when I do get get blame on a project and my name is the one that pops up. Yeah. Because I want to get mad at some I want to get mad at some other developer, not me. Yeah. Well, are there other aspects of this that we should dive into before we get to picks? I don't really have anything. I think we kind of covered the most important things like when to use it, when not to use it. And then also a huge one for me, which is why I think it's important to learn and why it's important to learn, even if you're not really planning on using it right now, just because it helps you understand the way that Ruby works and also the way the Rails framework works as well. So if we have some people listening right now who really haven't done metaprogramming yet, where would they get started? What would be the, what would be a resource that you could recommend to them if they're not one of your students? What, what would be a place for them to just sort of get started, ease themselves into the into learning how to incorporate metaprogramming into their skill set? Well, the way that I did it was uh, I'm a huge, huge fan of uh, Paulo Parado's book, Metaprogramming Ruby. I Kind, I personally kind of consider it one of the standards for metaprogramming in Ruby. And he also gave some fantastic examples. Uh, he actually kind of wrote that. I'm not sure if everyone here has read it or not, but for anyone listening who may not have read it, uh, he took a very interesting approach and wrote it almost like a narrative. Like he created a story of a developer, a new developer who goes into a company and learns how to implement metaprogramming from senior devs. And so it's very entertaining. And then it also covers all of the different aspects you could think of with metaprogramming, when to use it, and when it could be a very, very bad idea to use it. And so that anytime I get asked that question, that's always one of the top resources I point people to. 
That's fantastic. That's one of my favorite technical books. Um, of, of I read the I read the first edition. I actually admit that I haven't read the second the the newer edition, but I read the first edition. And it was one of the best best technical books I've ever read. So that's that's the recommendation I've given people too. So that's see, it's cool to know that that's still a, a great resource for folks. It, it really is fantastic. He did such a great job. I wish all programming books were written like that. I, I'd read a lot more of them. All right. Well, let's go ahead and jump in and do some picks. Uh, Jerome, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, I only have one pick. I'm sorry. I have been a lot of the conversations just I've been a fly to wall listening to you guys about metaprogramming because it's interesting getting a different um, points of views. But my pick is actually a blog post that uh, I uh, recommended to troops and people learning how to go in the past about metaprogramming and Ruby. Um, So it's from rubylearning.com and um, says don't know metaprogramming in Ruby. So that's my only uh, pick for the week. All right. Dave, do you have some picks for us? I got a pick for you. Not programming related, but if you haven't checked out the Sherlock uh, TV series, you know, on BBC, uh, definitely check it out. It's on Netflix and my wife and I have been watching that recently. And uh, one thing that you may not know about it, if you do watch it, uh, one of the writers, Steve Moffat, is uh, the writer for uh, Sherlock. And he also does a lot of the really good Doctor Who episodes. So if you like Doctor Who, definitely check out Sherlock. It's really cool. But the right, episodes Brian. are like oh. an hour and 20 minutes. So it's kind of a two-parter. <laughs> All right, Brian, what are your picks? My first pick is uh, an iOS application called Workflow. I just just learned about it recently, and it's been, in the last two days, it's been a huge lifesaver. It's sort of like an if-this-then-that system, but for inside of your phone. So being able to connect apps and route route things around. So it's it's now less of a hassle for me to example for example to take an email that I get from someone and put it in my to-do list uh, with it in in the right context in in the right uh, the right inbox I, I use omnifocus for my to-do list to, it sort of organizes all of the things that I'm that I have to do across all of my responsibilities and so workflow has made it really easy to integrate things with that but it, it's got other things like I want to take whatever is uh, whatever document I have, and I want to turn it into a PDF, or I want to take this this text and turn it into a PDF. Uh, it's just fantastic to uh, do a lot of the things uh, that I find myself needing to do. I want to send somebody a, a document. Well, there's a workflow task that I can trigger really, really easily from the share sheet that will just take the document, throw it in Dropbox, and then give me the share link to it. All this on an iOS device, and so it's it's just been phenomenal. I, I can't say enough good things about it. Yeah, it just saw that as well. Uh, yeah, yesterday. <laughs> yeah, um, it's just you know, probably I I got I'll, I'll give credit where credit is due. I read uh, Justin Searle's blog piece about, <laughs> working, about with, uh, working with the working with the iPad as a as a full time tool, and that's where I heard about him. what what is this? I just stopped, I sort of stopped reading the article at that point and went and go figure out what it's all about. Um, so so yeah, I, just it's a fantastic tool. Uh, the other thing I'm gonna I'm gonna throw out there I, I throw it out occasionally, um, Overwatch the video game I love it it's it's basically the only thing I've been playing now for about six months I play on PC and I play on the Xbox One uh, with my family wait wait well, oh pause yeah. what's your you need to send me your uh, your tag on oh. Xbox One because I'm oh, on we, Xbox we, One we will well. we will we will so play we will so play uh, <laughs> oh man this is <laughs> <pretty> good. <laughs> 
if you want to, if you, uh, if you want to play, if you want to play with me, you can hit me up on Twitter and we can talk about, uh, talk about how to, how to connect that. But I, I want to play with, I want to play with people who love Overwatch because it's just one of the most fantastic games. I get to play, I get, I play with my daughter. I play with my wife. We all join up and play online and together on a team. It's, it's, it's awesome. Got Those it. are my picks. Got it in November. Only game I've played since. So <laughs> never touched another game. So that's that's my game. Very nice. I'm going to jump in here with a few picks. First of all, I mentioned Ruby Dev Summit. It's online and it's free. I've got a bunch of speakers lined up. I'm still working out a few scheduling things with a few people that you've definitely heard of. But we also have speakers like Jordan and uh, Uncle Bob Martin is one of our keynotes. So uh, looking forward to that. Um, I'm also pulling together an Angular Dev Summit, if you're interested in that. And we have uh, Rob Wormald from the uh, core team coming and a bunch of other people coming to speak at that. Um, these are all online. Um, over the next year, I think I've scheduled out others for um, Electron, for JavaScript, and for AI. Um, so if you're interested in those, you can definitely check them out as well. I'm just really uh, working on a bunch of things um, related to that. And the way that I get those things done, since Brian picked a productivity tool, is I actually pick like four or five things that I need to get done, and then I just work on those. Um, I tend to break them down into smaller tasks and put them in a tool called Focuster, if you go to Focuster.com. And the the guy who created it, he's actually been doing some uh, training for productivity, and so I've been uh, doing that as well, attending that every week. And it's been tremendous. And uh, what Focuster does is it basically takes all the tasks that you put into it. Um, you just drop the ones in that you need to get done that day and it finds the spots in your schedule for them. And then you do them and it's, it's pretty awesome. And then, yeah, from there, what I basically do is, you know, if, if it overflows until the next day, it, I mean, that, that's what it does. So anyway, um, I'm super excited about that. And uh, I guess I now have to check out Overwatch because I have a lot of other friends who are talking about it, too. Uh, Jordan, what are your picks? A uh, couple of picks. Uh, the first one is a gem that I have been using lately that I absolutely love for authorization engine. So it's called Petergate, and uh, it just has, uh, you know, being able to implement permissions in an app can sometimes be a little bit messy, and some of the different gems like CanCan and Pundit are great, but sometimes they're a little bit overkill, especially for smaller apps. And so Petergate, it take, is for me, has uh, become one of my new favorite ones. So I definitely recommend that one. And then the other one uh, for a shameless self-promotion, Pack Publishing just uh, made my comprehensive Ruby programming book available for pre-order. So that's on Amazon. And so those would be my two picks. Nice. If people want to follow up with you or check out what's going on with uh, devcamp.com or any of the other things you've got going on, where do they go? Twitter is my Twitter is Jordan Hudgens and same thing with Instagram. Those are the two spots I post on the most. And then on my uh, on my blog, which is crondos.com, uh, you can also sign up for newsletters and I will send out different things like new courses when they go live and different announcements. All right. Sounds good. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap this one up. Thank you for coming. Uh, we'll catch you all next week. All right. Thanks so much. See you later.